0: and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is a recording from a live interview conducted at Peonia Books, an independently owned bookstore in Paonia, Colorado. My guest is Buzzy Jackson, author of the novel To Die Beautiful.
1: You know, there's always that question in the back of your mind, would I know when it's time to go? You know, how, how would I react? How would I respond? And I, that was one of the most poignant
0: parts for me. We'll be back with Buzzy Jackson after these essential words. Okay. Here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote-unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this, just an I which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world, we have to support what we love and there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and become a supporter of First Draft today. It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And on to the show. My guest today is nonfiction and fiction writer Buzzy Jackson. Her nonfiction titles include The Inspirational Atheist, Shaking the Family Tree, and A Bad Woman Feeling Good. Jackson has a PhD in history from UC Berkeley. Her novel is called To Die Beautiful and tells the story of Hanny Schaff a shy law student living in Nazi-occupied Netherlands who became a resistance fighter during World War II. It's based on a true story. This interview was recorded during a live event at Paonia Books in Paonia, Colorado. It's an independent bookstore in a town of 1,500 people. You can learn more about the bookstore, including events, at PeoniaBooks.com. It's worth a visit if you're in Colorado thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I thought maybe we can start with just a, a brief summary. And basically, your book focuses on Hani Schaff It's at the brink of World War II. She's about 21, 22 years old. And she is kind of an unremarkable person in her own way. She um, is kind of quiet. She, You write um, early on that she has a hard time finding friends and being social and having maybe the confidence to just be out in the world intermingling with people. But she meets two Jewish friends early on in the book and she realizes what is, what's at stake for their lives. And she kind of turns into this incredible hero. The only woman like leading in in her own, the, the resistance at the time is kind of in cells. It's not like it's a really organized where every resistance movement throughout the country it are talking to each other. They're very isolated. And part of that I think is for the safety yeah. of the people. And, um, this is taking place in the Netherlands, which, um, had its own, uh, Nazi, Nazism within their own country. I mean, Hitler did come in and invade and bring that out, but they also had it there. So it's really about her story. Yeah. How was that?
1: That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the only other thing I would add is that um, there's two other women in her resistance cell, the Overstegan sisters, Truce and Freddie. And um, they're a really important part of both her life and of this story, um, and important in keeping the whole legacy of the resistance alive after World War II. So I just always... Th- People who read the book will know a lot about them, but I just like to shout them out because they're so incredible. And they were also very young women, teenagers, when they joined the resistance. Hani was 19 when World War II started. So they were all around that age. In fact, Freddie was only 14 when she joined the resistance.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing. So I I think I've read um, from you that you were in the Netherlands and you saw it was either a statue or a plaque or something to Hani. And it got you interested. So I'm kind of curious about how this came to you. And before that, you'd only ri- written nonfiction. Right. So how did this, how did you know this had to be fiction? Mm. And what about it grabbed you that wouldn't let you go?
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's true. It was um, the winter of 2016. And as some of you may remember, a lot of shit went down in the fall of 2016. Trump was elected. The Brexit vote happened. Um It was, for me, a very um, shocking time, and um, to the point of what we are just talking about, one of those moments where you say, is this a a hinge of history kind of moment? And at that time, I didn't have a book project that I was working on. Um, I, I try to have a few at a time, but I was kind of just creatively dead. And I had the good fortune to go to Amsterdam for the winter break um, with my family and a friend there. um, She knew I'd been to almost every museum in Amsterdam, which there's about a thousand. And she said, but have you been to the Museum of the Resistance? And I had not did not even know it existed. Um, So we went and she said, you know, there's this little exhibit, I think you'd really like it. There's about this woman, Hani Schaft, you should write a book about her. And, you know, people have said that to me before. It's usually about their Uncle Frank or something, you know, whatever. Um, But I said, okay, yeah, let's go see it. And uh, we went in and, um, you know, it mostly has like relics of World War II. And then there was this very small little little, uh, case that had um, a pair of spectacles, a really beat up pistol, and a photograph of two people, um, one was a young woman who looked a little bit kind of dolled up scarf in her hair. And the other one was a young woman who was dressed as a man who had a, a sort of watch cap on and a big coat. And that was truce over Stegen and Hani Shaft was the young woman. And, um, it, all it said in the, in the exhibit was, um, Hany uh, became the most wanted woman in the Netherlands by Adolf Hitler and was responsible for the assassination of multiple SS officers and Nazi collaborators. And I just stood there looking at this photo of this very unassuming young woman and thought, well, I have to read this book. I mean, I got to find out more about this woman. And I immediately went to the bookshop there and there was no book about Hanyshaft in that bookstore. So I thought, well, I'll just find it somewhere else. And I kept looking over the next few weeks and there were for sure no books in English about Hanyshaft. There had been a biography of her written in the 1970s in Dutch. Um, and in the Netherlands, she's, she's pretty well known. I would say kind of like, I sort of compare her to like, um, maybe somebody like Sojourner Truth in this country where a lot of people know her name but then couldn't tell you exactly what she did but they know she was awesome, you know. And that's kind of Hani Schaaf's status too. So I decided... I'm actually going to try to write this book. But as you say, I had only written uh, or i had only published nonfiction books. So I just assumed I'd write a biography of her, just a straight ahead nonfiction biography. And I started that process of doing all the research uh, for that and felt confident about that because I know how to do research and I love doing archival research and that kind of thing, interviewing survivors, etc. But at a certain point, I did realize that If I wanted to get Hani's voice into the book, um, I wasn't going to be able to unless I fictionalized it. Because, um, you know, if you think about the most famous victim of the Dutch Holocaust, Anne Frank, I mean, the only reason we really know her story is because of her incredible diary that she left behind that is truly in her unique, beautiful voice. And that's very rare to have that kind of primary source. Um, And my agent at the time actually said, well, why don't you try fictionalizing it? And I was, I have to admit, I was hesitant. I was very hesitant because I think the historian in me, I felt like there was a kind of maybe a taboo against fictionalizing real history, you know. Um, and I, it took me a while to come around to having the confidence to try it, but also to kind of uh, have uh, what my dad, also a writer, referred to as the gall to do it. Um, and then I, I remembered um, Schindler's List, um, which Probably, we've all heard about in here. And I think most of us think of it as um a nonfiction book about Oscar Schindler. It is, in fact, a novel. um and it is a slightly fictionalized story of the true story of Oscar Schindler and the Jews he saved. And in Schindler's list, there is a prologue by Thomas Cannelli, the author that, I'm not kidding you. It addressed every single concern that I had as an author because he had had them also. Am I the right person to tell this important story? Do I have a right to tell this story? Is it respectful to the real people to fictionalize it at all? And ultimately, he came to the conclusion that he felt it was such an important story. It deserved to be brought to as big an audience as possible. And... That is exactly how I felt about Hani's story was I I don't want it to just be a dry history book that, you know, three historians read. I want to try to bring it to life. And so I would say that reading that forward kind of gave me permission in a way to try it as a novel. And although this is my debut novel, I have written three other what I call practice novels <laughs> uh, that are somewhere up in the cloud and will never be seen again by anybody else. But, you know, I did go through the experience of writing three complete novels and them not getting anywhere, certainly not getting published. But I think that was very crucial for me in having um, the confidence and also everything I learned during that process helped me uh, sort of be able to do this. a very long answer. Sorry.
0: (laughs) So you're wearing a shirt that says support your local girl gang. And I'm curious what it is maybe about the fact that she was female. Mm -hmm. If there's something in the way that you were raised or your belief system now that maybe fired you up even more.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I certainly, uh, would call myself a feminist and I definitely love, uh, women's history. And when I was in graduate school, my first book was about, uh, American women blues singers. So I've always been interested in women's experience and also the way that women's stories are often, um, not just not told very much, uh, you know, even if they do incredible things. Um, and so I did like the idea that Hani, you know, it was this young woman. And the more that I started to do the research, I was really struck, as you said, by the fact that this was not a young woman. This was not a young Greta Thunberg. You know, she was not a person who was uh, extroverted in any way. She was known as just a very quiet, sitting in the back of the room kind of bookworm. And yet she did these incredible things and kind of rose to the occasion in such an amazing way. And also I was inspired because, just knowing about her life, I was sort of outraged that her story was not better known, you know, sure, by the Dutch to some extent, but I felt like, come on, like, people need to know about her. So that, I think, did put a fire under me in terms of, you know, um, we got to get her name out there so people know what she really did.
0: So you were talking in the in the beginning, too, about Trump and the era that we're, that we're in, and I'm curious about how researching and writing this might have either influenced you or frustrated you or fired you up in other ways about who you are I think a lot of times when we read books like this we think well what would I have done would I have hidden people in my basement would I have become a resistance fighter Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering how you looked at what you have inside of you and and who you thought you would be
1: yeah it's a really good question um yeah, I think um, you know. After I, one thing that happened as I started to research not just Hani's story, but the story of the Netherlands in the world in World War II. Just basically, they were um, attacked by Germany in 1940. They were a neutral country, and so they were occupied by the Nazi regime for from 1940 until 1945. Um, so that was the Dutch experience. You know, was just under German control. Um, and I, I think I felt a little bit like, uh, I hadn't real. first of all, I knew nothing about the Dutch experience before I started writing this book. Um, and I did find that one of the things that is kind of special about the Dutch experience is that the, uh, Nazis did not come in there with a kind of big, um, Kristallnacht kind of like uh, shock and awe terrorist, uh, sort of introduction. They came in, Relatively quietly, and they started implementing anti-Semitic measures very slowly and very subtly. And this was very intentional because the Germans wanted the Dutch people to sort of join the fold of the Aryan Volk, so to speak. Um, and they thought, you know, if we if we come on too strong, we might arouse. You know, some people might be upset about this, but as you mentioned, there already was a Dutch Nazi party that had been gaining steam at the time Hitler invaded. Um, And for me, watching some of the politics that were happening in this in my own country as I was writing the book, again, I started writing in 2017. um, You know, Charleston and having like sort of the this new boldness of neo Nazis coming out and. Uh, protesting and doing horrible things um, was, it was quite alarming to me, not just because I'm Jewish, but because I was at the same time reading about a very similar um approach that was going on uh there where like the main politicians wouldn't say anything overt like we're gonna kill all the jews they just said things like it's for the jews own protection that we move them all into this one neighborhood just so they can be safe because these times are scary you know and of course that was the first step to a jewish ghetto in amsterdam which had never existed before and ultimately an easier way to transport jews away to concentration camps um Because of all of the Western European occupied, uh, Nazi occupied countries, the Netherlands uh, Jewish population suffered both the most in total numbers of Jews killed, but also a percentage. So 75% of the Jewish population in the Netherlands was killed during World War II. And that's higher than France, higher than Belgium, a lot of places. So the deeper I got into the research, um, I did start to feel like a hypocrite, you know, because I was watching in my own country, a bunch of bullshit go down right around me. And what, what was I doing? Um, and it did actually inspire me to become more active, um, with especially issues related to refugees. Um, I, you might remember around that time uh, during the early years, of the Trump administration, there were, um, Families being locked up at the border with Mexico, children being separated from their parents, and I—I I was having a hard time working on this book and just reading the news and thinking, how do I even have the right to write this book when somebody like Connie Shoft would have been out there doing something, you know? So, I actually ended up doing a fundraiser um, to support some of the. Um, refugee sort of legal assistance groups down on the Mexican border. And through the miracle of Facebook, started this a small fundraising thing that we called uh, Stop This Evil Bullshit. And it was, uh, we raised like $5,000. And then I drove down to the border and met a bunch of other activists down there. And you know, tried to at least show up physically to do something. And, and I continued to be involved with refugee stuff when I got back to, um, the Denver area and, um, you know, just got more involved in my community in general. So I do think it inspired me to take more action, you know, locally, uh, to the extent that, that I could. And, um, but she still inspires me, you know, everything they did still inspires me. And I still obviously don't feel like I do enough, but at least I've, I do more than I used to.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really incredible experience because a lot of times we see what's going on in the world and our art is a response to it, but you kind of saw what's going on in the world, made your art and then went back into the world. And do you, has writing ever done that to you before?
1: (laughs) That's an interesting question. No, I don't think so. You know, and writing this book, um, is really different than any of the other books I've written before. I think just because it's so, um, I just think writing a novel and really this book is told in first person, um, trying to put myself in the position of Hani and all the other characters in the book is really, um, intimate and emotional experience that I had not had as a writer before. And I've had people tell me that like, you know, there's, It's World War II. A lot of horrible things do happen in this book. And some readers have said, gosh, how do you, you know, was it hard to write those parts? And absolutely, it was really hard. I mean, I had times when when I would just procrastinate writing a scene because I knew how violent and sad it was going to be. I mean, I knew exactly what I was going to write, but I just kind of, I'll do that tomorrow, (laughs) you know, when I've had more coffee. And Or times when I was writing and I had to actually just stop and walk away because it was upsetting, you know. Um, And when I was doing the revisions for the book, um, I remember sending the manuscript off, kind of thinking it was like done, quote unquote. Of course, there's like many rounds of revisions from my editors. And getting the book back and realizing, okay, now it's time to dive back into some of those harrowing scenes was tough. Um, And at one point, I mean, this is just so weird. I've never done this before, but I was like, I have to get these revisions done. This is an incredibly intense chapter. Um, it's a true story because I have done the research. I know this horrible thing actually happened. Um, just to keep my own spirits up. I don't know why it occurred to me to do this. I got my phone out. I brought up the Pixar movie toy story And I just put it on silent and I just set my phone next to my computer. And there's just like, just so I could have in a corner of my eye, like happiness and children and bright colors and toys and, you know, something beautiful that had nothing to do with the Holocaust, just to kind of just like a little life raft out there. You know what I mean? And it it did help. It really did.
0: We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash Writers. So, Hani, her two friends that she's with, is it Felene?
1: Yeah, Felene and Sonia.
0: So, Felene and Sonia are her two Jewish friends that she meets, and they... Um, they inspire her when she starts to see what happens to them, to see their worlds get smaller, to see them get, um, more fearful. And she's friends with their families and they have very different families. One is very wealthy and thinks it's going to blow over. And one is a little bit more worried about what's going to happen, but still maybe has some faith. So you kind of get the sense that there is this prescience that Mm -hmm. some people had. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, it's not the same with Trump coming into office, but it's like, there's some people that are like, we got to pack our shit and get out of here now. And there's some people that are like, it's going to be fine. And I'm curious about your, your, because you have, you have the knowledge of history, like writing these characters, you did interviews with with real people that knew some of them, Mm -hmm. um, how you were balancing that and how that sort of struck you about people who thought it would blow over and it didn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was a huge thing on my mind the entire time. Um, I, you know, for one thing, uh, one thing I didn't realize before I started working on this book is like, again, Anne Frank, I knew her story, but I had never realized that By the time Anne Frank's family was in Amsterdam, they were already refugees. They were refugees from Germany who came to the Netherlands because the Netherlands was known for hundreds of years as a very tolerant place, a very safe place for Jews, which it always had been. They were not wrong about that. Um, But even escaping to the Netherlands wasn't far enough. And, you know, one thing this book brought up for me and the research brought up for me is... I think it's a question that um, probably anybody who's descended from refugees and certainly a lot of uh, American Jews have have experienced this or have pondered this thought, which is, you think back about your own family. My family left, sort of escaped Russia in the early 1900s from anti-Semitic pogroms that were happening there. And then, of course, there's families who stayed. And, I, you know, there's always that question in the back of your mind. Would I know when it's time to go? You know how w- how would I react? How would I respond? And I that was one of the most poignant parts for me was the conversations. There was actually quite a bit of um, of uh, Feline, who was one of the friends. She left about almost 20 hours of oral history um, in a, in the Shoah archive at, at USC. So I watched and listened to all of that. And the way she talked about her father, because her mother was dead even before the war started, and the way, you know, he initially tried to leave. He tried to take Feline and get out of the country about three day, three days after the Germans invaded. And the bank would not let them take all their money out of the bank because it was against their policy. You know, it was just a bureaucratic rule. And so you can see that her father had the initial kind of panic and like, let's get out of here. And then once that wasn't possible, he started justifying to himself why it was okay to stay. And she kept saying, let's go to America. Let's, let's, we can get to America. And he would say, I'm a French teacher, you know, what am I going to do in America? They don't need a a Dutch French teacher that, you know, he would argue with her about these things. Um, And so that, to me, it's one of the scariest parts of the book is, yeah, looking around your own country, your own moment in history and thinking, is it, am I just fooling myself, you know, about this? Or am I just fooling myself because of my own privilege? I'm not seeing it, you know? Um, And uh, it's a really haunting question, I think. And I really wanted to make sure in the book that that came through of how difficult that was. I have to say on a personal level, this is just my supposition. I think partly Feline's father kind of made the arguments about why they should stay, partly not to scare his daughter, you know, partly to be that, like, comforting father figure saying, it's going to be okay, honey, don't worry. Um, in the end, she went into hiding, of course, with Hani. and actually Hani wanted to bring her father too, and he wouldn't go. He decided not to go, and uh, he died in a concentration camp. So it's... Um, it's one of the most chilling parts of the book to me for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, phew. yeah. Um, it's interesting because honey, I think that that, that there has to be wrestling done around the kind of heroism that she had to, because other people are, are also implicated. So one of the most heroic things she did was she did bring her two friends with her. She, they were in Amsterdam. She, they, she brought them to Harlem to her family's house. Her dad was kind of a communist and they basically, um, didn't know this was happening. So all of a sudden these two Jews come into their house and the consequences of that could have been their own death. And I don't, I mean, she couldn't text them and be like, Hey, (laughs) um, so all of a sudden they are accomplices to this and they had lost another child. So, I think their, their bond to their child was even stronger to love her, but there's without a doubt that she put them in, in danger. And the, the moral question of that, like, are the ethics that because you're doing something so good, you can also put your parents in danger. And that was, um, very, very interesting part of the book. And I'm curious, if you found anything more about that relationship or from talking to people? Right.
1: Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Hani's parents uh, who uh, survived the war um, did not, they basically lived a very private life after the war and did not ever give interviews. They're dead now. So I was not able to, to interview them, but I did learn you know, a fair amount about them as much as I could biographically and, and about the way Hani talked about her own parents. And I guess the thing that I came around to was it's true that Hani did not warn her parents she was going to do this, I think partly because it would have been dangerous to, to do that, to just say she's even plotting that. And two, I think because... I think she knew it was such an impossible thing to ask that the only way she could do it was just to show up with these two girls. And I, you know, what I learned about her parents was that, as you mentioned, her father was a communist and that's important because the communist party in the Netherlands was really the main engine of resistance in, in the Netherlands. They were behind the general strike that happened, they were behind, uh, many of the resistance cells, which including the one Hani was in. And he was the president of his teacher's union. So he was a kind of, you know, active person on that level and socially progressive person, um, and they had had lots of conversations over the dinner table in the 1930s about the Spanish, the Spanish Civil War, you know, and they were on the part of the, on the side of the partisans, and so she knew where his politics lay, and even her mom, who was not maybe as obviously politically active, um, she was very involved in her church, and it was, um, you know, I think a I don't know exactly the denomination of the church, but uh, a Christian church that had admitted women as ministers as early as 1905. So, you know, churches today still aren't doing that, a lot of Christian churches. So I think she knew her parents would be somewhat receptive to this, and I think she just took a chance that if they saw these two young women standing in their foyer, they would not be able to turn them away. And to their great credit, they they did shelter them. Yeah. and you're right. Yeah. it was a which was something that was punishable by death.
0: yeah yeah um so as as I mentioned when we were talking about the beginning, th- these small cells, they were kind of on their own. I mean, they kind of decided what missions they would do. They kind of um decided because eventually Hani's first movement was maybe, distributing resistance newspapers, but then she had a gun and she was shooting Nazis, um, right in their face, right at their front door. So she, she meets someone who, you know, and before that she's a law student and she meets, um, these two men that kind of helped usher her, especially one named Jan. And, but, uh, there's another one named Hendrik, who, she sort of thought that he was a Nazi. They set her up, Jan set her up to learn how to shoot, to see what she had inside of her, to go shoot this guy as her first test. And he says, I think after that, when they start talking, he says to her, I'm not responsible for your, your success, your failure, or your safety. You are, but we are all of us fellow soldiers on the struggle. And I think what this small passage reminds the reader of is like you really are on your own you're not you don't have health insurance you're not like joining something with a with a bulletproof vest you are kind of taking these things on your own so I'm curious about you know how that fed into her character and and more what you learned about these remarkable individuals who just took it upon themselves
1: yeah yeah I mean um I think that uh, Jan Bonacamp, who you mentioned, who was really the one who trained her how to use a gun and a very, you know, important person during her resistance experience. Um, You know, I think he was a very, and he's a real person, and he was a very charismatic guy. I mean, everybody who knew him said that about him. He was somebody who was inspiring to be around, you know. So I think that helped in terms of, um, you know, getting inspired to just do something as insane as learn how to use a gun, you know, during this time. Um, And also I think it's, it was really important that Truce and Freddie Overstegen were already, these two young women were already in the cell when she joined and they were from a family that was a very radical activist family. Their mother, they're raised by a single mother who had gotten divorced from her husband, you know, in 1920 or something, which, didn't happen a lot, changed her name back to her maiden name and basically devoted her life to helping refugees. She was the one who gave permission to her 14 and 17 year old daughters to join the armed resistance. So, you know, they're coming from a place of, um, some experience with this kind of work. And I think her friendship with Truce and Freddie really bolstered her own confidence that she might be able to do this. Um, and, you know, I think also it's important to remember that, you know, the Netherlands in uh, 1939, let's say, before, before Germany invaded, had a military of, I don't know, maybe 2,000 people. I mean, hardly anyone. They had like six planes in their air force. And the entire air force was wiped out in the first five minutes of German's Blitzkrieg, the German Blitzkrieg against Rotterdam. So, essentially, the resistance was the military, and they assert, all of these young women and men, uh, especially the armed ones, saw themselves just as soldiers um, and held themselves to the same standards of soldiers in the sense that um, even though, as, as you say, they didn't have anyone backing them up or providing them with food or a safe place to stay, they they knew there was a precedent for fighting for your country Um you know, even if you were not sanctioned by a an official national military. And I think because Hani in particular had been in law school, her dream was to be uh, what we would now call like a human rights lawyer. She wanted to work for the League of Nations. Her whole life had been leading up to that. And then the League of Nations collapsed uh, in, in 1939. And so I think that was a big part of it too, is literally everything she had worked toward in her young life was no longer an option. So at that point, um, things that might seem insane (laughs) to do in a previous situation, I think suddenly seemed um, plausible, you know? And I think seeing her friends, Felene and Sonia, not only what Felene and Sonia's families were experiencing, but seeing the radical difference between her own experience and that of her two friends I think that just filled her with so much righteous anger that that was the fuel, I think, that made her do what she did.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because although she saved them um, and brought them to her, her family's house, and that was really hard for them. You know, basically, Sonia couldn't handle being stuck in an attic room without, you know, even opening the window shades. I mean, just imagine inside this room upstairs day after day after day after day. I mean, we have so much outside time in our lives and she did this really wonderful thing, but then she couldn't really go home that much to see them. Honey. Yeah. Honey couldn't go home. Yeah. She was doing her resistance thing and it wasn't that she couldn't go home. She could she couldn't like morally or, or like emotionally, she avoided going home to see them. They didn't, I don't think they knew the extent of what she was doing, but I think it pained her so much to see her family that she avoided them. And that's, there's some interesting psychology there.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I do think a big part of it was, you know, if she would go and visit Sonia and Feline who were staying in Hani's own childhood bedroom, um, you know, that's for a little girl. And like you say, it's a very small enclosed room. I've seen her house. I haven't been in her house because people live there, but it's just a very small little brick house in Harlem. Um, you know, she would go visit them. It would be wonderful, a sort of wonderful reunion. And then Hani would get to leave and they couldn't do that. And I think the sort of guilt of that was really hard for her to take. I think also... Some of it was just uh, caution. She didn't, She didn't. you know, in case anybody was maybe trailing her, she doesn't want to lead somebody, you know, following her to, to where these girls are hidden. So I think that's a big part of it, too. And I think that she, as far as I can tell from what, um, you know, the records that exist, she did not want her parents to know the extent of the danger she was putting herself in which was not only, you know, assassinations, but transporting weapons um, across country. And, you know, keep in mind, transporting weapons means riding a bicycle with uh, guns and, in one case, a bazooka in your bicycle basket with some you know, blankets over it, and you just hope that nobody sees them, because if they do, that's also punishable by death, Um, you know, placing bombs, that was another thing she did, she did some espionage of sneaking onto sort of military bases, Um, all of these things were, you know, potentially fatal for her, and I think she was afraid of her parents asking her questions, not wanting to lie to them, but also not wanting to put them through that,
0: you know, so you had you know, this started with this visit to the museum because you'd seen every other museum, and not all of them, but it ended up in this in this beautiful book. And I'm curious a little bit about how you took all that research because it sounds like you probably had reams and reams of research. You structure the book into four parts by date, um, moving forward in time. How did you go about doing that? Like, did the structure help you sort of wrap your mind around all the research um yeah
1: yeah i thought you know i really felt strongly it had to be a pretty much straightforward chronology of what was happening because so much of the story of the dutch experience in world war ii is the very slow creep of the nazi regime getting sort of you know, grinding the boot heel down more and more as months and years go by. And I felt like I could really only, um, track that if I just followed along with the chronology, just in the same way that Hani and these girls, you know, had to as well. Um, There was a ton of research I did. um, I made several trips to the Netherlands um, to do research in their, you know, national archives. There's a Institute of Genocide in Amsterdam, a fun place uh, that they have a ton of really great research. And I was very fortunate to have the help of some Dutch friends and colleagues, you know, who can speak and read Dutch because I can't do that, uh, who would come with me and I'd give them a list of key names and key words to look for and they'd. Find something, and we'd photocopy it. I get it translated later. Um, and also, I went to the National Archives in um, in England because the the sort of Dutch government in exile was based in London. And any any information the Dutch resistance could get, they tried to get to the Royal Air Force, you know, the British. And so there are actually incredible records in the National Archives in the UK of it was fascinating to me to go there and open these old files and see what the other side of the, of the Dutch resistance information that had gotten to them. Now, most of it didn't get to them because it was intercepted. It was very hard to get information across. But some of it did, including some of the stuff that Hani did in terms of, you know, mapping areas where V2 rockets were being built and that kind of thing. And to just see these memos from, you know, British... Royal air force, uh, generals talking about, well, I really hope these Dutch resistors like, you know, get a little more organized and can get us a little bit more information, you know, kind of thing. And I'm thinking they're killing themselves, trying to get this to you, you know, but obviously it was a, a joint effort. It was, it was actually very gratifying to see that it, you know, the other side of it. Um, I had so much research that, um, this book is a, you know, fairly long book. It's about 420 pages. Initially, I would say it probably was about 550 pages. Um, and there's still stuff that is really amazing stuff that I couldn't fit in there because, you know, I did want people to read it and not be too intimidated by the size of it. Um, it, uh, in a way, I think I just tried to pare it down to what was the most relevant to the emotional experience of Honey Shaft and of Truce and Freddie as well. Um, and a lot of the other stuff and some of the side stories, I just had to let them go because, um, there's just not room to tell the whole thing, but I, I feel like there's, enough material out there for somebody to write, you know, 15 more books about all the other people in this book. Cause they're all incredible.
0: So there's a scene in there where she's going, I think it was going to kill an SS officer where she's taking a little bit of time to get there. Cause she's like putting on her makeup and she's saying like, if I'm going to die, I might as well die beautiful. So I'm curious about, about the title. And if that came and then you realized that should be the title if that was something you knew about her well
1: that is you know one of the reasons i did want to call it uh die beautiful or to die beautiful is because it is one of the few direct quotes that we have from honey shaft um the story you just told is accurate um it was and it's recounted in a memoir by truce oversegan who worked with her closely of course was one of her closest friends and truce was very um just very uh, no-nonsense, practical, down-to-earth kind of, uh, you know, person, whereas Hani was an intellectual, a little more sort of philosophical, and they kind of teased each other about these things as part of their friendship, and you're right, Hani would go to, you know, take time to put on her lipstick, curl her hair to whatever extent she could. I mean, we're talking about, you know, they, they don't have much at this point, um, and you Truce would often, Truce says in her memoir, she would get frustrated with Honey because she'd be like, come on, like, this is not the point. And it's, and that's exactly what happened. She said, we have to go. And Honey said, look, Truce, if I'm going to die tonight, I'm going to die beautiful. And it's such a incredible thing to say, (laughs) you know I mean? It's so, um, there's so much vitality, I feel like in that statement, um, By this point, she had already been exposed to so much danger. It wasn't like she was naively saying that. She knew she could die that night, you know. And um, I just felt, especially because we have it from Truce herself as a quote from Hani. I feel like it says so much about Hani herself. And I just love the idea that her her own voice is in the title of the book.
0: We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of first draft at patreoncom slash first draft writers. So can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Sure. Um, This is going to be a little jarring to go from the Dutch Holocaust to this, but honestly, it's one of my favorite books. Um, I love Shirley Jackson, no relation, sadly, Um, but um, I love one of my favorite books is the Shirley Jackson book from 1962. We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and if you're not familiar with it, it's um, it's a book written in the voice of a teenage girl. It's a novel. And I'm not gonna say too much about it. You should read it. It has, I think, one of the best opening paragraphs uh, of all time. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I'm 18 years old and I live with my sister Constance. I have often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length. But I've had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself and dogs. And noise I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet and Amanita Philoides the Death cup mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead.
0: Is there anything more you want to say about that?
1: Uh, I just think it takes. It really takes guts to write an opening paragraph like that to just start a book with my name is XYZ and here is my story. But the real magic of this book, which is, I should say it's a it's a mystery that unfolds in a really beautiful and unexpected way Um, it's a very dark book as you can imagine from just this this thing but the real I think power of the book is the voice of Mary Catherine Blackwood and I feel like by the end of the first paragraph you you're in you you want to hear more of her her crazy voice and um, it's just a tour de force of, of point of view I think.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or sure. changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Sure. <clears throat> um, I thought I would just read this paragraph from the beginning of chapter five. It's in the spring of 1942 in Amsterdam. And this is when um, Hani has not joined the resistance yet, but things are getting bad. Uh, they're getting bad for the Jews. So again, Feline have already been kicked out of school for being Jewish. Hani can still go to school. So she's trying to teach them at home in sort of home classes. Um, And she's walking around Amsterdam, um, kind of trying to notice everything around her and figure out, like we were talking earlier, like, how bad is it, you know? So this is um, from the beginning of chapter five. How does evil spread? Like a disease from one human to another? or the way the new anti-Jewish measures sifted down into the private lives of Dutchmen, like dust in a closed room, moat by invisible moat, until one day we turned the key in the lock and found ourselves trapped, and then looked back in our little room and discovered it so entombed in filth it was not fit to live in anymore. The imposition of Berlin time awakened me to a new truth. We were not awaiting a tragedy, we were living in it. Each time I looked at the alarm by my bedside and took the extra step of adjusting the clock, I felt that bitter pearl grow. Now when I walked through the city, yellow stars screamed at me from street corners, do something. And the clock reference there is, is about a scene that comes right before this where the Germans in 1942 um, changed the time in the Netherlands to Berlin time. And it was something they did, I think, in every country they occupied. And there's the sort of totality of that, the kind of um, the idea that this this occupying evil force can actually control time in your country is so I think that was what I'm trying to say. I think in this in this paragraph is like seeing that was really a huge shock of, oh, yeah, they want to control everything, even what time it is, you know, and um, I, I've also chose this, this paragraph because it it was a hard paragraph for me to write. It was a hard sort of section for me to write because it really is um, kind of a taboo, you know, in writing to uh, tell and not show. But I did feel like every so often in this book, there was a, a need, I felt, to kind of step back and just observe sort of the mental state of Hani herself, of the people around her, and kind of try to get a little perspective on the bigger picture. And so every, you know, whenever I write a section that's like that, where it's not just two people talking to each other, it's not an action scene, um, I always feel very self-conscious as a writer, because I feel like this is going to sound pretentious, or this is going to sound, you know, whatever, Um but, uh, but I, so I've worked on that paragraph a lot and I am happy with the way it turned out, but it was definitely like, a especially moving from nonfiction to fiction, it's a kind of fictiony thing to do. And it, it was like, okay, I guess I'm going to do this. I'll just see if my editor cuts it out, you know, but she didn't. So, uh, so I'm, I'm proud of it now, but it was, uh, sort of uh, on a personal level, kind of challenging. Where do you write? Um I think I, you know, I've never, I wrote this book over seven years. So it was written in many different uh, kitchen tables and uh, laptop desks uh, in my, you know, on my couch and whatever. For the first time in the last uh, about year and a half, I actually have an office, like a dedicated office. So now I write in my office. The main thing I don't do is I don't write in public. I don't go to coffee shops. I don't go to cafes. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I just cannot I can't do it. I just need peace and quiet. Sometimes it's even hard for me to listen to music. Um, and I know if I go to a public space, I'll just—it's too easy for me to get distracted.
0: What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Well, I watch Toy Story. Obviously, you um, know, <laughs> um, you know, I. I've thought, I've thought from time to time, I actually got my first tattoo when I was working on this book. You can see here, it's a little V for victory, which was the graffiti, the resistance graffiti that was all over Amsterdam. And I got this in Amsterdam on a research trip. Now I have three tattoos, which is how it goes. I've thought about getting a tattoo and I still might with the Latin phrase, um, Solvitur ambulando, which is attributed to Diogenes, Uh, the Greek philosopher, and it means it is solved by walking. And I think there's many, many different ways you can interpret that. But for the most part, I interpret it in my daily life as I'm just going to get up and take a walk. I'm going to walk around the block. I'm going to take a hike. I'm going to do something. Something about walking is like um, a magic salve for like Putting your mind at ease and also getting good ideas, you know. So, I, I would say going for a walk is my main outlet.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Um, I'm pretty. Um, I'm I'm pretty reticent to share my work for a while. Um, what I have found is that if I write something or if I even just write an outline or have an idea, if I start talking about it too much. I hear myself explaining the idea and it starts to sound really dumb to me and it makes me lose faith in my own project, you know? And, um, so I usually wait until I have like, uh, you know, a somewhat polished, like maybe second draft. Um, I, first person I show it to is, um, Benjamin Whitmer, who is here today, who's a fellow author, um, whose opinion I really value and trust, and then after that, I share it with my writing group that I've been in for about a decade, and even then, I tend to just share parts of it. I'm just... um, I don't know. I think I'm just very protective of it. It Just again, just for my own sanity, um, until it's at a fairly polished stage, at which point it's too late to do anything. And I'm just going to have to go forward with it.
0: (laughs) How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Um, I've definitely dealt with rejection and, um, you know, I think one thing that helps me is I do try to have more than one writing project going at a time, which is not to say that I have two, two books that are at the same point of the process, but at least I usually have ideas for a second book kind of bubbling while I'm working on the main one. And what's helpful about that is if the main one gets rejected at least you have something else that you are interested in and can focus on and kind of say, all right, I can move on to this. I do try to give myself, you know, a few days to feel sorry for myself and feel bad. Um, but I, I'm a person, as you can tell from this book, which is covered in post-it notes, I put a lot of post-it notes, reminders to myself all over my house, um, especially my office. And, I often just put the same post-it notes up and they fall down. Eventually I write a new one and put it up. And one that I, the one I probably put up the most is very simple. And it just says, just keep going. And that's really when, you know, I teach writing uh, and especially to writers who are just starting out. That's the main point of advice I always give them is, just keep going. I mean, what else can you do? If you were out drowning at sea, would you stop swimming? No, you would keep swimming, you know, just keep going. That's the only way it's ever going to get better. And, um, I probably have three different post-it notes that say, just keep going in various places in my house currently. So that's, that's kind of how I get through it. And what
0: is your favorite word?
1: This is a hard one, um, but I think uh, the word that I first thought of is a Portuguese word. I don't speak Portuguese, so uh, forgive me, uh, native Portuguese speakers. But it's the word um, "saudade," and it's s a u d a d e, and it essentially it means um, it's a kind of a a longing, a yearning for something in the past, or a past moment, or person, or a feeling, and it's a big part of um, Portuguese and Brazilian literature and culture. A lot of their, a lot of writers who I love, um, like Saramago and stuff. Sort of, it's a theme in their work. But to me, it also, it also sort of is emblematic of the feeling of. Um, almost a nostalgia for a memory of something that never even happened, but it was maybe a wish you used to have. And I think that they often say it's untranslatable, you know, which I think to an extent it is. Although I think there is a term in English that is somewhat approaches it, which is another fantastic word, which is the blues. And just the idea that a a color can represent so much, you know, um, and, Probably we all know exactly what the blues means, you know, as a feeling. Um, so, yeah, Saudaja, a.k.a. the blues. Thank
0: you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Mitzi, and thank you guys for coming. Thank you.
0: This interview was recorded live at Peonia Books in Paonia, Colorado. Check out the store at peoniabooks.com. If you'd like today's show with Buzzy Jackson, author of the novel To Die Beautiful, check out my interview with Jim Shepard on his novel, The Book of Aaron. We talked about Janusz Korsak, an educator and reformer in Poland during World War II who ran an orphanage and died with the children in Treblinka, an extermination camp. We discussed writing about heroes, finding conflict in a story, and finding the cadence of how his characters spoke. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jill McCorkle, Diane Seuss, and Antoine Wilson. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.